Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, folks, here right. we go again. This is it. This is other people. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's been a strange couple of days. I've been experiencing a little bit of insomnia the past couple of nights. That happens every once in a while. Uh, two nights in a row now. Uh, it's been interesting. It's been a little bit annoying. Last night, I had a nightmare. Uh, I had a nightmare involving my wife and uh, hairy armpits. <laughs> this is a true story. I'm not making it up. Uh, you can't make it up. It's just too strange. So in my dream, uh, from what I remember, I was talking to my wife, and it was very casual. Uh, I forget the exact substance of the conversation, but I remember that it was casual, and I remember that she was wearing a tank top. And all of a sudden, as we were talking, uh, she sort of uh, you know, veered off in a new direction and was like, check this out. And she lifted up her arms very suddenly, like like wings almost. And it was... Uh, it was evil. <laughs> and uh, it was like a velociraptor, you know, and, and her armpits were unbelievably hairy. Like not only were they hairy, they were extremely unusually hairy. It was like an, it was like an explosion of uh, follicles. And I snapped awake, uh, just like in the movies. Just, I was, I was absolutely terrified. Uh, heart was racing. I was breathing heavily. 
And it took me a couple of moments to orient myself in the darkness. And then from that point forward, I was awake. And once I wake up in the middle of the night, it's very hard for me to fall back asleep until sunrise for whatever reason. That's just the way I'm wired. So uh, for the past two nights uh, during these uh, insomnia fits, I have been awake from about 2 in the morning until 5.30 or so. And I've been lying there in bed with a phone in my hand, tweeting, just reading Twitter and tweeting insomnia tweets to no one, essentially. So I figured I would read a few of those uh, for you right here. Uh, These are a few of my insomnia tweets. Feel surprised that there has never been a memoir called I Want to Be Inside of You. Wonder how many times natural childbirth has been live tweeted. Roosters seem annoying. Snapped awake, nightmare-like, after dreaming that my wife had really hairy armpits. Just rolled over and whispered, Honey, I dreamed you had hairy armpits. Wife, half asleep, said, I'm going to make your dream come true. Feel like I'm the only person on Twitter. A devastatingly sad movie called The Last Tweeter. Wonder how Hall met Oates. A Rick Rubin produced Oates solo album called American Oates, the cover of which features a sepia toned photo of Oates in an empty field. Time zones seem surreal, i.e., I can't believe I'm, quote, in a time zone. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Those are my insomnia tweets. I hope you found that enjoyable. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Kathleen Alcott. Her debut novel, The Dangers of Proximal Alphabets, is now available from other press. She is published at a variety of notable places online. She is young. She is very talented. Her book is generating all kinds of buzz, and I'm very pleased to have her here on the show. So here we go, folks. This is my conversation with Kathleen Alcott, the author of The Dangers of Proximal Alphabets. like sitting in a really beautiful moment. Um, my apartment is really loud, and so I decided to come into my publishing house's office. So 
I'm in this abandoned office, in corner office, really looking out at the Manhattan skyline surrounded by books, which is pretty perfect. Yeah, that is great. Why is your apartment so loud? Um, it's the Williamsburg Bridge lets off right by my window, so there'll be these like beautiful moments of silence, and then just five minutes of Lady Gaga so loud, you know, while people like get off and the stoplight releases or whatever. Oh, okay. You mean like their car from coming from car windows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, like, give me like a visual read on this, because what I'm picturing is I'm picturing you're, you know, you're like on the third or fourth floor of some building. And then there's just like a, a a bridge and a ramp like right outside your window. Is that your apartment? <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually on the first floor and I'm street side, and the Williamsburg Bridge lets off just um just like a a block uh, north of my apartment, and then all the cars getting off of it go down my street. And also, what's even worse is that there are uh, garbage cans right outside my my window. So. A foot from where I sleep, even though there's a wall, there are people that are, like, going through the garbage all night, which I've come to accept as a lullaby. Like, it's weirdly comforting, but that's probably really fucked up, you know? Well, like, it's, I just... it's, like when people, it's like when people live near the airport and, like, they get used to the sound of the jet engines, you know? I feel like I would, I would like that, if only because there's that Richard Ford story about... Um, this man whose wife bartends at the airport, and I think it's called fireworks, and it's very sad. But I always liked the idea of that of living near the airport and hearing hearing those sounds. Yeah, you know, I used to have, and this is the thing. Like, I used to have this. Uh, I have a lot of this in my life, and I guess this is pretty normal. But like, I used to, th- I used to think that it would be so cool to work at the airport, much like I used to. I used to think <laughs> that I wanted to be a trucker, like I wanted to be a long yeah. trucker. And maybe I, you know, maybe I would have loved it. But there was a time in my life in my early twenties where the idea of being autonomous to at, le- at least in terms of like uh, my workspace you know and having nobody sure. having nobody lording over me and being able to move around was very appealing to me and then i always liked uh the vibe at airports i liked being around all these people in transit and seeing just the flow of humanity and thought it would be great to somehow work at an airport which you know now i sort of well, question so what would your what would your job be? You would just be a writer at the airport, like a writer in residence <laughs> at JFK, or well, they should have one. They should have a. De- <laughs> they should have like a you know a soundproof clear box or something with a writer uh-huh. inside of it, and like they just pass food in through a window or something. But no, my ambitions were scaled way down. Like I, I wanted to be like, for instance, like the guy who drove you know drives the little golf cart around and like totes like elderly people to their gate. But, you know, just a yeah. Of, just to sort of mix and then just be like, just to be there and just kind of soak it up. And I used to say too, that I was going to, um, I was going to just go hang out at the airport. It was like mm-hmm. one of the, one of those like writerly investigative, you know, <laughs> behavioral observation things that I always said I was going to do, but I never did. You know? Yeah. Here's the thing. I know a lot of fucking people who say that they do that. And I bet you one of them does that. <laughs> right. Right. You know, but it's hard. To actually- I will say that. Motivate. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, it's hard to actually motivate to the airport, you know? Well, yeah, and it costs like $8 on whatever public transit system. Fuck it, you know? You could play a YouTube video of an airport and feel all right. Yeah, exactly. Um, airplanes are one of my favorite places to write. Because uh, st- you still have to pay for the Wi-Fi. So as long as you don't pay for it or you just pay for the hour, I always fly Virgin and I fly across the country like, like pretty frequently. Um, it's just like the, it's just the cleanest feeling of like forgiveness and and impermanence and all those silly things we say about the place we want to write, you know, and and being anonymous. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You write on a laptop when you're on an airplane. Mm -hmm, I do. Okay. So I, I love to, I like to read on an airplane. 
because it's like focused time and you're just stuck in that seat and there's no phone ringing and you know like you say there's no internet although that's changing uh but when i try to write and i've got my laptop like set up on the little tray table or whatever like two things happen one i'm always thinking that like the person sitting next to me is reading what i'm writing i feel like some sort Mm -hmm. of i have some sort of weird privacy issue and then yeah. two, like it, it is a curse of mine. And I actually want to, I'm glad to be able to say this on the record because it really makes me angry. But the person in front of me always is the one person in their own front of me to like jack their seat all the way back. And there's like, you know, there's like six inches of leg room. And I'm like, and when that happens and you're, you have a laptop down, like there's no way you can even see, like I, I'm, you know, I'm not. A well, but what you're not addressing is the terrifying thing that when the seat goes back, it almost crushes the, the top edge of the laptop and you have to bring it down swiftly. Yeah, no, exactly. And like, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty non-confrontational, but I have had moments in the past where I've actually asked, I've been like, "Excuse me, like this is ridiculous. Can you please move your seat up?" And you know, I just it just always happens to me. So I'm impressed that you can pull off the actual writing act on an airplane. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about your problem of privacy, and I was thinking that we could probably design some kind of, you know, it could just be cardboard just surrounding you on three sides. It's like a kind of little more than a hat, but a hat. (laughs) Well, but it also, you know, it's so like the conditions for me to be able to write have to involve solitude. Like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's like some sort of secret thing, you know, like any kind of public exposure just like ruins me somehow. And I feel like I should be able, I used to not be so quite so guarded. Like, I feel like I should be able to write. Yeah. What are you ashamed of? I don't know. I I have shame issues. I think I'm just worried it's no good or it's just like, it's distracting to me to even think that this person might be like glancing sidelong at me as I'm like, you know, I don't know. It's weird. I need to get over it. You know what? I usually would say like you're, you're being paranoid and who cares and just, just like give yourself that moment to write. But it did happen to me a couple weeks ago. I was in a cafe and this 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 asshole guy was kind of sweating me and uh and and he tapped me on the shoulder and I took my headphones out and I thought he was going to ask me something relevant like do you know what soap do they use in the bathroom I don't know whatever questions people in cafes ask each other and he referenced what I was writing he was like what are you working on and I and I just said uh you know I was a little bit curt and and he referenced something that was actually on the page, and it scared me so much that I got up and I packed up and I left the cafe. Yeah. Oh God, that would that would devastate me. <laughs> I, ne- I would never go. I would never go out in public again. Um, so, but you know what it brings to mind, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spill this story, even though like it's the seed of I hope something I'll eventually write. Like I've always wanted to somehow implement it into fiction, but it's it's just such a great story. Um, like my sister, my older sister, is one of those people who uh, can get onto an airplane or any like mode of public transport or be in any kind of public situation. And she can instantly like befriend the person next mm-hmm. to her. And she's like the kind of person who will go on a, a cross country flight. And at the end of the flight is like hugging the person sitting next to her and like exchanging phone <laughs> numbers. Whereas like, yeah. I don't want to, I'm like, don't look at me. You know, I don't know what my, yeah. is, but, um, I'm friendly. I'm just not like that friendly, you know? And, uh, so anyway, she's on a flight one time, and the, the thing about this when you're this open with people is that it can sometimes come back to bite you. Oh, yes. And so she sits next to this guy, and she was flying down to uh, Louisiana, which is where my uh, my parents are from. And so we would always go down there for the holidays. And so she was flying down uh, you know, uh, on her own from the Midwest, and she sat next to some guy, and they talked the entire flight, uh, you know, or at least for most of the flight. 
at which point uh, my sister fell asleep. Uh, this is another thing she can do. Like she can sleep anywhere, and like I can't sleep on a moving vehicle of any kind. Well, maybe she developed a second talent after she realized, you know, her talent for the first. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's like her escape hatch or something. But she was talking to this guy. I think he was like, he was like a maintenance man or something. I can forget what it was. But um, anyway, they lived. You know, they both lived in uh, the same town in the Midwest, and they were both flying to New Orleans. And they struck up this conversation. And my sister's very nice. And uh, then she falls asleep and then the plane is landing and she wakes up and, uh, you know, she bids the man farewell. They, they go to baggage claim and they're kind of chatting in a friendly way. And then she uh, gets a cab or a, a car to take her to uh, my grandparents' house. And she gets there and she's on like, you know, settling in and like unpacking her bag and she reaches into her purse and the guy has written her like a two page letter. About how beautiful, oh, no. yeah, like about how beautiful she looks when she's asleep, and like, you know? <laughs> yeah, just like insanely creepy. So uh, it can backfire, you know. And she found this note, and he was like asking her on a date at the end of it, and of course she didn't like respond. But well, I don't know. It sounds like they kind of hit it off. Was he really misread the situation? You know, I, okay. So here's the thing. I'm gonna I'll divulge even further in terms of like my fictional aspirations for this, but like. What I think about is because, like, th this is actually something that in my single days, like, I could envision myself doing just because I was always so chicken when it came to actually asking a girl out mm -hmm. uh, and just awkward about it. Like, didn't know how to, especially in, like, a, you know, meet a stranger on an airplane. Like, that just would never have happened with me. Um, but, like, to write, you know, was a more comfortable scenario. And maybe you just write a quick note and that way it's non-confrontational and it's in her court. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I can see it. Mm -hmm. I can see the appeal. But yeah. what's crazy is that like, I, or what would happen if I did that is that I would put the note, I would like reach down and tuck the note into her purse. And then like, what if my sister had woken up and like found the note before they landed? Like you have nowhere to go. You, no, you know, what's even worse is if she wakes up and she sees the guy reaching into the purse and she thinks he's a thief. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it, there's just so many different ways this could go. And so... I always have this like idea for a, you know a story where this guy's just like stuck in the middle seat while this girl reads this letter, <laughs> like, you know. Just serious. Yeah, extreme pain. So anyway, and then either he, he it's it's so hard for him. I think in the story that either he tries to eat the letter or he lights it on fire and then gets kicked off the plane for terrorism. You know, <laughs> right. he's put on the watch list. You know. So many terrible things could happen. You're correct. Sir. Yes, yes. It's a very, it's a very disturbing situation. It's always bothered me and kind of stuck in my head. Um, so anyway, <laughs> you mentioned that you fly often back and forth across the country. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we're not talking every other week. I'd say every couple months, but um, it's a, it's a San Francisco, New York type of deal. San, San Francisco, New York. Like, what is it? Just work related or uh, personal? Um, well, I'd say it's a little bit of, a little bit of both. Um, but as a writer, you can write off everything, you know, like my tax return is a poem. So I write that off because sure. I feel like, um, any, I mean, I'm from, I'm from, um, I'm from the Bay area and, uh, I've got a lot of friends there and I'm also kind of into nature and stuff. So I go back and try to like soak up some hiking and ocean, uh, before I come back to New York city. Yeah, I'm that way too. I think like, you know, especially if you Well, we're, you're in Los Angeles, correct? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles and uh but I lived in Colorado for 8 years and kind of got the nature bug and 
I need a little bit of both. I don't get enough of it, frankly. But like, uh, isn't it weird how once it's in you, you sort of realize like you're an asshole hippie that you don't like. Like the things I find myself saying, like, yeah, I just wish I could relate to some trees right now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? This is the thing. Like, it, it's so common, and I've been coming back around on this. It's so common, I think, especially for people who had a hippie phase in their youth, or who gravitated in any way towards Bohemia, uh, or smoked a bunch of pot, or whatever it was. You know, like. Uh, I went through that. I had a 60s obsession, like a lot of people in our generation. It was like this mm-hmm. weird it's, – it's like I was like part of this weird, I feel like, uh, cusp, like generational cusp where like our eyes were sort of pointed backwards culturally as opposed to like the moment we were in or forward somehow. you know. And I feel like it changed like right after or a few years after I got out of high school. But like I just remember in high school, like I listened to like classic rock and all the music of my parents' generation, strangely enough. But – um, you know, I had that, those years and tell me if you're the, you know, if you feel differently, but you know, I feel like, you, you know, you go through those years and then as you emerge from those years, you begin to like ridicule those years. And like you spend time with your friends talking about, uh, how much you've changed or how silly those old days were and how you can't believe you did certain things you did or wore certain things you wore. Um, but then now as I'm like getting towards 40, I'm now in a mood where I look back on like hippies and I know obviously they have their faults, you know, they're, they're not all right about everything, but like, I feel like defending them. Like I think hippie instincts are good instincts in a lot of ways. Here's the thing. I, I think that they certainly are. Like I, I think, I think a sense of, of, of like giving and like a relationship with the natural world and, and, you know, community, all these things are wonderful. But my problem is that I think there are all these people who it's sort of like if an alien just didn't really have our language and describe to them what hippie values were. And then they like, there are these terrible versions of hippies that don't that don't really act on those beliefs but they just wear the right clothes kind of or they go to fucking yoga right um the story i kind of want to tell actually and this is this is perfect and this is when i was living in san francisco about two and a half years ago is um i was living this really busy intersection and by the way this story is entitled the wishing tree so i was living at this really busy intersection and um, there were these kind of neo-hippies that lived next door to me, and they were always, like, having these dinners on the street and asking how you were and going to vinyasa yoga and da-da-da-da-da. And, and that was fine. Um, but then what one of them did is this tree, like, right in front of our, in front of our shared stoop, um, she, she made a wishing tree out of it, which I don't know if you know what that is. I feel like this is a thing that Yoko Ono did as an art exhibition, but it's where, you know, people are encouraged to come by and write a wish and, and hang it on the tree or nail it or, you know, whatever system you have in place. All there has to be is, is paper and wishes. And she set up this wishing tree, and what that meant is that we were suddenly just, like, accosted by all these people who were like, please take our picture by the wishing tree, or these, like, crackheads who would, like, write crazy things to the wishing tree, and it was just, like, kind of awful, and (laughs) my roommates and I... They're wishing for crack? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there were crazy things written on it. This was right at, like, 24th and Mission, which is, like, not, like, that, that safe of an area, really. Anyway, so my roommates and I tried to to relate the fact that uh, we weren't so stoked about the wishing tree, and we also felt like she was she was damaging the tree. She was putting all these holes in it. There are all these reasons that she should take it down, um, but she 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 didn't really want to do that, and so we decided to just take some action. Um, so one time, my fr- so my roommate Will, 
he he did a slap job like of taking down the wishing tree and didn't really work and she put it right back up. He put it in this in this paper bag to be polite. She put it right back up. So then um about two nights two nights later I went out there after like I drank some beers and I was like, That's it, I'm taking down the fucking wishing tree tonight. <laughs> and I and I and I climbed up the tree and it, it got intense because she had like she had really attached the chains with the wooden sign and there was glue involved and I had to get up there to unscrew this stuff. And um and and it's like two in the morning, right? And it and then so I'm up there and I've almost got the thing unscrewed and I can take the sign off. And I hear her yell from the window. She goes, what are you doing? Like she goes, you're killing my art. You're killing my art. She literally yells this. I'm like, oh, my God. You're kidding me. That's what I should yell Fucking on. That's, that's what I should yell on airplanes when people are leaning, yeah. back, leaning back in their chairs. That's what I yell anytime anyone reviews my book. <laughs> anyway, hold on. I had to, I had to finish this. So, okay. So, I, so I, I'm like, ah, I don't think I want to deal with this crazy hippie right now. So I, I like run inside and I just like pretend. I just like pretend nothing has happened. And about 10 minutes later, um, there's a knock at the door, and it is an official knock. You know what I mean? This is not the hippie. It is a policeman. And I open the door, and the policeman is, like, so, like, he's kind of ruddy-faced, and he's looking down, and he just has, like, this shitty posture, and he's like, uh, I got a call that you were, um, hurting a wishing tree. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, oh, that, that tree right there? And he's like, I, uh, I guess... I'm like, well, it doesn't seem to be hurting to me. Is is that anyone's tree? And and he's like, no, uh, no. And I was like, okay, well, thanks, you know. And he just like didn't know what to say. And he's like, oh, all right, good night. And that was the end of that. <laughs> and so, how did it resolve itself? Well, the wishing street tree just kind of it kind of stayed up, and we just we just went on. I mean, then there was just a rivalry. Like I made this uh, on Halloween. I carved this like dick into a pumpkin and put that on the on the stoop, which really offended the hippie neighbor who kept turning it away. You know, <laughs> like she just thought that I was really improper and crass and hated love, which was not the case at all. You just love um, pumpkins. Yeah, I just love pumpkins. <laughs> so wait, you actually anyway. you actually carved the like, the outline of a of a dick into the pumpkin? Like that was the Yeah, carving? my friend Gabe and I did it. Um it was sort of like it it, it was the outline of the dick and then the vein was backlit. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> That's creative. Uh so mm-hmm. just to like sort of round out this hippie thing though, because mm-hmm. I get what you're driving at, you know, like it can get, it easily gets ridiculous and maybe like more often than not, it gets ridiculous, but like, it's like, it's like, I feel like the instincts underlying the ridiculousness have all this merit, you know, it's like the vinyasa yoga thing. It can get so annoying. And then you adopt, like then all of a sudden you've got like this expensive yoga couture and you've got this like dogma that's attached to it. But like Doing yoga itself, like stretching out and breathing, like that, that's okay. It's incredible and important for you, yeah. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? So I don't know. I feel like I, I'm sort of in a mood now where I'm I'm trying. I want to be less hard on myself in the past and like more confident in the instincts that I had when I was like 22. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I feel like maybe the rule is do it, just don't talk about it. Or like if you, you know, you can talk about yoga for 30 seconds or whatever. You can talk, you can genuflect at the altar of exercise for two minutes or exercise or whatever it is you're doing, your holistic massage class, and then, like, ask your friend how they're doing, you know what I mean? And not talk about that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Then shut up about it. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about San Francisco. That's what, I mean, you're from there, the Bay Area, in the city, or where are you from? Um, no, I'm from Petaluma, which is about 45 minutes north of San Francisco. So I kind of, you know, bounced, bounced around um, 
from like my hometown to then like college and then and then I was in San Francisco proper um, for a couple of years before I moved to New York, which was almost two years ago. Okay, but like Petaluma, I have a my, 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 one of my wife's friends is from Petaluma. That's pretty rural, correct? Well, you know what it was. We were actually known as the egg basket of the world once upon a time, um, which is an official title. We had the most eggs produced, but it turned into the thing is that there's like a river, and it was one of the only towns not um, devastated by the uh, by the earthquake in San Francisco in the early, um, you know, in 1908 or 06. Um, and so there's this historic downtown. And so when I was growing up, there were still all these, like, there were these beautiful sloping, you know, barns and grazing cows and, you know, lots of bucolic bullshit, like, out in the town. But then suddenly there were, like, these boats named, like, America and Dreamwish, like on the little river that's in the town, which is really a slew, but everyone buys into it, they, you know. Um, and then it was suddenly like super yuppified, and now it's the restaurant capital of its area or whatever. And it's right by the wine country, so it's not a surprise. Yeah, it's like all like these like fancy chefs like open up their little restaurants out there and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's just it's restaurant after restaurant there now, and really expensive to live. Yeah. Well, what about uh, like what about when you were a kid? Like, what kind of kid were you? Were you just running around outdoors and doing all that stuff as a child? I was, and I had a good amount of, um, you know, of free reign. Uh, I had a rope swing in my front yard that I really liked, and I really liked to climb trees. And I went to the ocean, you know, a good amount. Uh, and the town was small enough that it was kind of like you know everyone looks looks after their their neighbor's kid. Um, and so I, I mean, I feel I feel lucky about that. I'm glad I know how to climb a tree. Yeah, you know that's good. That's a good thing. I was raised, you know, in the in a small town too, and you know, what small town? Uh, it was just north of Milwaukee. It was like just a little sub, you know suburb, but it was old school. It had like a general store. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like it was really sort of like out of another time. Like I remember there was like a blacksmith and. You know, like they had part of it was like touristy and like sort of kitschy old school, but but still, you know, it felt old school. And we would go ice skating, and and you know, we basically just leave the house in the morning and come back when the sun went down. And my parents didn't even know where we were, you know. Yeah. And I don't think I can do that with my daughter in Los Angeles. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's probably not going to happen. Um, but were you from a young age uh, bookish? Like, was this was this always kind of in your blood, and were you always writing? Um, sure. Well, you know what it was, I think, is that I was just first and foremost always attracted to a story and that expressed himself in different ways. I was into like, I was into like theater when I was a kid and I was really into reading and I was into songs, especially, you know, specifically those that had, you know, narratives like my, I had the, all these, these drunk, um, great uncles who would sing me all these Irish folk ballads. Um, which are definitely story-based, and I love those. Um, and also, I should say, and, you know, this is a part of the, uh, people always go like, well, is this is this part of the book inspired by your real life? Um, both my parents were, at, at one point in their lives, journalists, and so they were both writers, and so they were kind of always encouraging me to, you know, find a stronger way to express myself. Like, as a kid, your first impulse is to be like, that's garbage and I hate it. And they would be like, well, why do you hate it? You know? And so, um, I had that sort of encouragement. Um, and I spent a lot of time alone. I mean, I had an older sister, but she is like eight or nine years older. So there, there was no, there was no squabbling over toys or any kind of like, you know, like shared fantasies. It was kind of up to me. And I think I lived a lot in my own head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that's like, uh, I feel like uh, when I talk, I've talked to like only children on this show before and you know, they often point to that experience as like, 
you know, part of how their imaginative life kind of bloomed or whatever, you know, when you're supposed to be sort of uh, forced to defend for yourself and create your own fun and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So, okay. So uh, you had your, your parents were both journalists or at least for a spell, uh, you were doing this stuff, uh, you know, from a young age, but when did you actually start to take it seriously? Like, did you get to the point, uh, in college where you made the decision or was it after that? No. Um, well, I should specify at this point that I'm very young. Um, I'm 23, so it's like sort of... Holy shit. I know. That's usually what people say, but I thought I would get it out there rather than doing the sidestepping and have you, know, have you go like, well, you know. So I was writing from a really... I remember writing stories when I was like eight or nine, um, and my, my parents read me like real literature, which is, is sort of a fucked up thing to do to a kid, but worked, worked out pretty well for like me. Like what? Like what? Um, like, like Garcia Marquez a lot. Like I remember one huge point for me was my dad reading me, um, some of his stories from a collection called Strange Pilgrims, where I realized that you didn't have to write the world exactly as it was. Um, and then that was huge for me. And then I was suddenly like, well, I can write stories where my bedroom turns into a jungle and that's fine. And then I started doing that. And that was maybe when I was around 10 and I was always kind of writing, I was always writing after that. Um, and then, you know, I think, and then I probably started really committing to it when I was around 15. Okay. And so what did that entail? Because if you're publishing, uh, at 23, you had to have gotten started working in a serious way younger, or at least that's what I tell myself. Right. I mean, like when, like when you were 15, does this mean that you were writing daily and working on books and stuff like that? Um, I, I never took up anything so huge as a book when I was 15. What I, what I did do is that I read, um, you know, voraciously, which I feel like as people always kind of pair those words together. So now I don't want to say voraciously, but I just, I read like it was fucking food, you know, and I, um, and I wrote, uh, a whole bunch. And I wasn't that happy of a teenager. Um, none of us are, but there were, there, there were particular like events in my life that were, you know, that were sort of tragic. Um, and so I kind of turned to, to books and writing. Well, what happened? Um, may, I, may I ask what happened? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, well, so my, um, my dad died, um, when I, you know, when I was before my junior year of high school, but also my mother's partner, who was basically my stepdad, died. So then they died within like a month of each other. Oh. And so it was this it was this crazy thing where I had been like off to this, you know, very bubbly, um, bubbly teenage start. And then it was kind of just like ripped out from under me and I had to like be an adult then. Um, and so I kind of I, like coped with that through through books and, and writing about it. And I never it's not like I ever really was a big journaler. I've always thought journaling was a little bit bullshit but i think that i wrote i started with poems when i moved into stories and they you know they helped me understand what i was what i was up against i guess well yeah no i mean i i, I think i was talking to somebody on this show or i was talking to somebody in my life but it, the, the conversation turned to therapy and i've never done i mean i have nothing against therapy a lot of people get a lot out of it but i think there's something so obviously therapeutic about writing whether you're writing for publication or you're just writing regularly uh you know somehow in some way uh, you know, and I find that, uh, I guess for people who have this impulse, especially when you're dealing with something super heavy, like the first thing you do, you know, it's like reach for a pen to try to like figure out how to, how to kind of make sense of it by writing it down. And I, I don't know, like I, it's, that's how I work through my stuff, uh, you know, for sure. And what I also think it is, um, and, 
and this is more and more rare in, in 2012 in a technology-ridden world, is it's like a chance to be alone. It's one of our true chances to actually sit down and play in our brains and like forgive ourselves if we're not you know, uh, looking at the news or Twitter or, or whatever it is. Um, and I think that that's important. I think there are way too many people out there who don't feel comfortable alone or don't give themselves a chance to be alone. And it's really scary to me. I feel like you need that. Yeah. I mean, I have to have it, you know, I think it's just the way that I'm wired, but it's strange too, because, you know, most of the time when people are on Twitter or they're looking at the internet, they are alone. You know what I'm saying? They're just trying to kind of like yeah. medicate, <laughs> medicate against that. It's like one of the loneliest things ever. Like last night I had an insomnia fit, which I sometimes will have. And, um, I was up. And so I'm just like sitting there with like my iPad or whatever in the night, just trying to kind of put myself back to sleep. And I'm on Twitter and it was like two or three in the morning. And it was that weird window of time where it's like two or three in the morning in LA and five in New York. So like no almost, one's on there. No really. one's on there. No, I was like the only. <laughs> I was like, I'm the only person on Twitter. This is the most depressing thing ever. <laughs> I need to. Start... I've been that person too. It's not a good feeling. No, no. I need. I need like a constant stream of new tweets. I felt like I should start following people in like foreign countries. You know, to get a, you know, a broader kind of time base or something. Well, if only you could maybe like. I guess TiVo isn't a thing anymore. But if you could TiVo Twitter, just play it back the hours of the day that you. <laughs> It's like a slide, <laughs> just a slideshow of my favorite tweets or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So <laughs> let, let, let's continue with, uh, your bio. Cause this is like interesting. I didn't realize you were 23. This is sort of blowing my mind. So, um, you go through all this, uh, you know, with the loss of your father and your stepfather and yeah. your writing and like, did that, I don't know, did it intensify this, the, the level of seriousness in terms of like, you know, your ambitions? Like, were you all of a sudden like, I need to write a book about this to make sense of it? Or were you just simply doing it impulsively as a kind of uh, self-therapy, you know, self-therapeutic type thing? Well, I would first, I would first correct, that sounds harsh, but I would first correct a statement, write a book about it, because that's not what I feel like I did, you know? Um, I think that I just, I, you know... I wanted to, you know, continue to find value, like, within myself, and that was something that writing gave me. And, you know, and so I went on, and I and I worked harder at it, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it could, be, you know, it could be said that, it was, you know, it was born out of some sense of tragedy, but I think that I just worked hard at becoming a better writer and um, was lucky enough to have the, the, the discipline to do that. Um, and like the self-motivation, you know? So, okay. And so when you went to college, you know, were you already completely locked into writing? That was definitely on your mind and you knew that was what you, know, what yeah. you were going to do. And what I did is, and I remember it was kind of funny is that I just walked into, um, this professor's class and I knew I wanted to, he had an intro class, but I knew that I didn't want to like take that or whatever. And I, and I said like, here's a bunch of my writing and I'd like to take your the next level or, or whatever it was. And he just kind of like, he was like, he read it and he was like, sure, that's, that's fine. And so, um, yeah. And where, and did, you, where did you go to school? Um, Chapman University, which is in Southern California, um, in, uh, in Orange County. Okay. Yeah, and, yeah. um, and then I actually, well, the, God, man, now it's just like the, the gems of my shocking bio. But then I dropped out of college after two years. Like I had taken all the kind of writing classes and then I, and then I moved to San Francisco and then I really started publishing and I got an agent and that was kind of, that's like the, there's, there's the story. Oh, wow. Okay. So you were in, you were at Chapman, you were taking these writing classes and then you were just mm -hmm. like, you're, you're like, I'm done with it. 
Well, it wasn't really that intentional. My plan was that I was, um, I was, you know, I was transferring to another school in San Francisco. And then it was like, I don't know, it was like California budget cuts and I got this internship. And then it was like, it was, it was that classic thing where I was like, I guess I'll take a year off. And then in, in that time off, I, you know, I ended up getting more, more serious about writing, but also the rewards were coming in more and more for the work that I was doing. And it just like, you know, it just didn't, it didn't make sense. And then here I am and I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm not, you know, I'm not ashamed about it. Yeah, no, shit. I mean, I, there's nothing to be ashamed of, of having a, a novel published by a great press at age 23. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. So when you say that the uh, the rewards were coming in and stuff like that, what do you mean? You're just getting guesses and getting published online and stuff like that? Or was it more sub? Yeah, I just felt, but but also internal rewards, which I actually think are, are a little bit more important. I feel like when people like write to me and, and say like, you know, you know, like what what's the best way to go? go about this or <clears throat> I think it's more about developing like a, you know, it sounds so cheesy and like speaking of hippies, but it's really more about developing a trust in yourself and a confidence in your prose um, than it is. Like, I feel like you, you have to, you have to have that before you seek out the rewards of publication representation. And so how do you get it? Just rep, like repetition, just keep continuing to sit there in the chair. In the chair. Well, I try to write in a, in a cardboard box in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> that was what really happened was I was out there drifting, and people were like, "Save that girl, she's drowning." And then after that, there was so much attention that the publication followed naturally. No, but but I mean, honestly, like like where do you get like if you have if you're this young and you have this much confidence in your own writing and you you know you're this far along? Well, no, hey, hey, I don't want to say that. There are definitely days where I think that I'm writing that I'm writing shit. Um, but as 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 with every writer, you know what I mean. But it's more about the confidence of of like continuing to continuing to sit down at the chair, the box in the ocean, and saying that some of this will be worthwhile. Right. You know. Right. Now, some of it always is. You yeah. just might have to end up cutting fifty percent or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so where do you get the discipline? Like what is and and what is your like a uh, you know your ritual? Like are you every day writing? Are you three days a week, five days a week? How does it go? Well, so I actually. Um, I'm so sorry. There's like a cleaning crew outside of the office. It's all right. Um, I actually try to be really flexible about where I can write and when, because I think otherwise you, I, I mean, I would get trapped in a, a pretty awful cycle of, of guilt. Um, I kind of try to write all over the city. There are some parks I like to write in. There are some cafes. I'll write early in the morning if I feel up to it or, you know, in the evening if I can't um, sleep. Um, and I think that feels way better. Like the writers that I talk to who are like, I can only write between 6.30 a.m. and 9.32 a.m. and there must be a sparkling water from this country and a blanket <laughs> that my grandmother sewed. I'm like, what the fuck? How do you ever get anything done? Oh God, that's me. I mean, it's not me, but it, I, I'm too much like that. Well, that's that's fine, you know. I mean, sometimes I envy those people. I just think that the that, you know it's kind of hard to get those things out of the world, like always. So if you if you ask a little less, you know, maybe you're more likely to get another page in than you would, or another six or ten or whatever. Right, right, right. And so, um, what about like what about struggles? Like, I mean, how much rejection did you have to endure? And like, when did you you were like what nineteen when you started submitting? Eighteen years old when you started submitting stuff for publication? I mean, did did you have a compressed period where things weren't going well and you, you were like, oh, fuck, like uh, this isn't going to work? Or? I mean, I definitely was, you know, a comically like 
bitter food service employee for a little bit there. Um, but I was actually lucky enough that, uh, that my agent found me actually, she just read something that I, that I published and got in touch with me and was like, are you working on anything longer? And, um, they always ask that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Where's the novel? (laughs) Yeah. They always ask where's the novel. And, um, and then I, and then I went from there, but I actually feel like I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I waited and didn't start frenetically, um, seeking, seeking that out until, you know, a someone else deem me worthy of doing that. I, I probably would have gone on, got on honing a little bit longer, but I just, you know, I ended up lucky. Okay. So this agent, who is your agent? Um, her name is Victoria Marini. She's with Gelfman Schneider. Okay. So she comes to you and she says, where's your novel or do you have anything longer? And did you have something? Um, well, so what had happened is that there was like, uh, there was an idea for a book that was somewhat similar to, to the book that, that just published a couple of weeks ago that I had kind of started in college. And then, you know, it was just this, you know, boring story, like a hard drive crash. I had given up on it and I'd forgotten about it, but she said, are you working on anything longer? And I, you know, kind of like looked around and I was like, well, I better be. Um, and so I, and so I just, I pitched it. I pitched the idea that I had been walking around with for a couple of years and then I sat down to work to write it. And how long did the writing take you? Um, you know, it was about it was about a year and some change, I guess. Okay, yeah, and like, like, just did it come out? I mean, did it, do you feel like it came out of you pretty whole, or was it kind of like an arduous process of cutting and revising and refining? Well, um, I was never, I never felt lacking words when I sat down to 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 compose it, but um, the the temporal construction of it you know, was a little bit of an issue. So I had, you know, I had all these chapters and I, I mean, this, this is, this is like a caricature of, of a, of a mad writer, but I had to set them all out on the floor. And I remember I had a, I had a deadline to, to send her them. And I, and I just sent her this picture and it was just like all the chapters on the floor. And I said, I need more time, you know, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I eventually stitched them together in a way that I thought made sense, but I didn't have, I didn't have that um, trust in the narrative until a little bit longer into the process. Okay, and then so once you finish it, then uh, how long was it before uh, you got it sold? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, was it quick, or did it take multiple rejections, or do you know what I'm saying? Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were there were a couple of rejections. There were some. There were some pretty. The funny thing for me is that I feel like the negative criticism that I get is so similar to the positive criticism. Like the negative criticism about this book was always like way too cerebral and based in memory and the positive was like i love how based in memory it is it's like playing in someone's brain you know <laughs> right right <laughs> but like well it's, it's a just, fine line it's yeah it's a fine line and it's just so subjective and it just takes one you know what i'm saying one publisher one editor say they love it and they want to publish it and they believe in it and that's it you know and if until you get there that's not it <laughs> Yeah, and you just have to find that one. I mean, my editor Karina, it was like I heard her voice on the phone and she first of all just has this lovely voice like it's a butter factory and she was like, "Hello, you wrote a near perfect novel." And and like we talked for a little bit and I was like, "That that's it. She's the mother of this book, you know." Yeah. Done. Well, if she says you wrote a near perfect novel, like it's automatically winning her. Yeah, kudos. yeah. Well, she said she said <laughs> some other things, but uh I don't know, she just she loved it in the, in all the right ways. Yeah. So, okay. So th- this isn't, I mean, this is unbelievable. So how are you feeling? Like this is, a, 
an interesting place to be. You're 23 years old. You've got a book that has been well received, uh, that sold, that got published. Like, what is your worldview? You must feel pretty optimistic about things, or, or not. I, mean, I am feeling pretty like just disgustingly sanguine lately. Um, but I'm tr- I'm just trying to. I'm deep into a second book that I'm really in love with, and um, I am. Uh, so, you know, so I'm I'm working on that. I'm really excited to see where the rest of my life leads. I'm certainly a little bit impatient, you know, and I'm definitely a little bit hard on myself. Like sometimes news that I should see is good, I'll I'll find a way, at least for several minutes, to think of as not good. But um, I I feel I feel really Again, stupid hippie talk, but I feel pretty blessed. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, what about this second book? Is there a two book deal, or is it you're going to have to go back out with it? Um, well, so it's on it's on option with my um, on my publisher. So that you know that'll all be that'll all be settled uh, down the line. And so I have I'm deep into that, and I also have about like half a half a collection of short stories, which is always the writer's like secret shameful thing, you know, like you have to talk about the novel at parties, but really you're like, and there's a collection of short stories. <laughs> In case you would like them and some haikus for good measure. <laughs> if I was just like, yeah, Brad, I, I have a collection of uh, sestinas that I'm looking to shop. <laughs> Do you know anyone who might be interested? Mm-hmm. So, okay. So are, are you writing full time now or you do it? You still have to work other things or is, are you able to like, just do this for now. Um, I freelance. I work like I work like you know um, like a couple days a week for like an internet writey job, um, and then I'm you know I'm lucky enough to to write um, fiction the rest of the time. I mean the past couple the past month or so has mostly been publicity for this book, so I'm trying to like not let my bones you know like creak too much because it's you know it's hard to write when you're managing all that stuff. Yeah, I mean I yeah that's an interesting point too. Is it like because so much is required of writers when it comes to the publicity cycles for their books, or at least like, you know, I guess it's not required, but it feels, it feels like that because if you don't do it, a lot of this stuff won't get done. And of course you want to fight for the book, you know, especially if you spent all the time to write it and get it published, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's an extreme uh, time commitment and energy commitment. And it's hard, I think to, to do both at the same time. Like, have you found yourself able to be creative and do this at the same time? Or have you just sort of like unplugged from working on the second book, uh, so that you could just focus on this stuff? Um, well, what I've been doing is I have been writing the second book a little bit, but it's, it's much easier for me while I'm, while I'm, you know, like managing this kind of like publicity carnival is to be working on, um, short, on short fiction. And that's fine. And also it's just like, just, kind of trying to to forgive myself because I'm too hard on myself if I don't write for at least an hour every day like I have a tendency to feel like a monster or something um but I've, I'm just trying to let myself off the hook yeah no I mean you know I think it's defensible if you have a book that's, that's rolling its way out into the world to spend time but uh, you know what someone a friend of mine said that um that I thought was really really smart a writer Let's talk, you know, we, we were talking about this and, and, the, and the stuff that writers today are now required to do, you're, you're required to tweet and you're required to have a commanding bubbly persona, it sometimes feels like. And, um, and, 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 you know, and I was, and I was talking about, about like cope, coping with that. And he said the cool, the way, the, the way he views it, which I like, 
is that as writers, I mean, you were talking about this early in the interview, we're always longing for that clean feeling of like youth and I'm actually working hard. Like you wanted to be the guy in the, in the airport. And, and, but then we also, because we feel guilty that we do this, this silly job that sometimes feels emotional or is it important enough or is it helping people? What you have to do is you have to see all those things like the, the tweeting, the posting and stuff is like work and like what, you know, it, it makes it a real job and that's incredible. Yeah, I guess that is a help. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, it is, you know, because I I have wrestled so much, you know, like I have to use, I feel I have to use social media for things like this show and for uh, the nervous breakdown. And, you know, I feel like there's professional aspects to social media that make total sense and are even like a a necessity. But for me, as far as uh, like personally tweeting goes, like the way that I finally found a way to like enjoy that is to make it an art project. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like my Twitter feed is like not used socially. Like I'm not talking at people. I'm, uh, I'm just trying to like write little funny things or whatever. And so that like the, the cumulative effect hopefully is that you could read the feed and get something out of it. So, you know, I have that feed, but then I have a feed for the show and then I have a feed for the nervous breakdown. And those two feeds are promotional and businessy. And do you know what I'm saying? And I'm trying to Mm -hmm. kind of keep the world separate and, that I found has like allowed me to reach some sort of equilibrium with it where it's enjoyable and not like completely, uh, I don't know. It can, it can be super draining otherwise for me. Yeah, totally. And people don't really like to, people don't really like to talk about it. I think it, it's expected now that we say like, I love to tweet, you know, and, and, uh, and it's just supposed to be a part of our lives and no one talks about no one talks about the emotional effects of social media, especially, you know. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> you do? Well, let's On talk about it, Brad. I, I know. I'm like whining about it constantly. Because <laughs> I feel like every time I log into, into Facebook, there's like a little little part of my heart chest system that gets panicked because like somebody is going to post some sad shit about someone that died or, you know, I'm going to get a message from someone I haven't talked to in a long time or like, you know, it's just always – um, I don't know. It's, it's strange. It is strange for me. Yeah, no, it, there's something like inherently sad or, or weird about it. And I, uh, you know, I, I read other people have like a much healthier attitude and they don't take it so seriously or they just think of it as like, you know, a gathering place somewhere they check in once a day and, and write something pithy or whatever. But like, I feel like a lot of people, or I would even say a majority of people are really curating like a version of themselves. Like there's more thought that goes into it or more, uh, at least more subconscious egoness or something that goes into it. And it's, I don't know, it can have like a, a grim effect. And it's, I think that in a perfect world, I would spend very little time on Facebook. And if I'm going to dick around, it would be on Twitter, like reading, fun, mm-hmm. like reading the funny thoughts of other people. Like I can actually enjoy that. And, uh, you know, I really do enjoy it. I think it's kind of, I think it can be an art form. I really do. And I love the compression of it. I love that you're limited to this 140 characters. Um, you know, there's something about it, but then there's also, you know, well, I also, what I really like about Twitter is like the, the choosing of your own universe. Like speaking of, of something being curated, like I do not have to hear uh, like from people that, I think are idiots. Like on Twitter, I'm only choosing the most like brilliant and, and funny and reliable people and news sources. You know what I mean? It's nuts. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's like, you know, I don't know. It's useful. Like that one, I, I, I'm like, if I had to pick one in a heartbeat, I would pick Twitter, you know, over yeah. Facebook in terms of my enjoyment of it. But, um, let's talk a little bit about what it's like. Yeah. Well, what, what it's like <laughs> to be you. 
I'm interested to know what it's like uh, for you living in Brooklyn and having this like publish, you know, publication experience, like uh, and having this proximity to the publish the business of publishing. You know, are you um, like going around to all sorts of parties? You know, because I feel like when, especially when somebody as young as you has this kind of success, it generates maybe a bit more excitement than somebody who debuts at like age 42. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like that, it's kind of like like public. You know, pu- publishing houses love to find young talent and you know you're you're especially young in this world to be doing what you're doing so you know has it been a lot of parties and have you been meeting fancy people and doing all that kind of stuff i mean you know i've i'm actually talking to you from sean connery's guest home and <laughs> it's been lovely but the food is terrible yeah, yeah it's awful um I have you know I have been doing a fair amount of socializing but uh the the thing about um I mean I'm I'm in love with so many people in the New York literary scene they're all so goddamn supportive and smart and there's there's a feeling of like that there's you know enough enough success to to share and it I you know I couldn't ask to to be surrounded by by more incredible people. And so, yeah, there have been, there have been a good amount of parties, but they've been fun. Okay. So how are you meeting all these people? Well, I mean, I've been here, you know, I've been here a couple of years. I've, I've, I've met, you know, a number of them like, uh, pre-publication and, uh, you know, they're, it's, it's something of a small circle. Like once, you know, a few key players, it just expands, you know, it's a little game. Yeah. And you just like, cause like I've never lived in Brooklyn, but I, that's how I imagine it. Like you just going to, parties and brownstones and like you know everybody who's there is essentially somehow connected to publishing is that it is that how it goes no i mean there is that joke there, there's like some joke about brooklyn that like if you're sitting on a brownstone stoop laughing then you must be happy and fulfilled and successful and it's like just not true <laughs> uh, the, the trick is the trick to trick to managing new york city as as i figured out is that you get to go out like two nights a week and like, and and be your best self, and talk to these people that you really like, and they're your friends. I'm not saying I'm not saying that's not the case. And then, and then you've got to handle you got manage. That was a mix between handle and manage. And then you kind of just have to like handle yourself, and you have to read and write, and like keep becoming the person that you are, and that people like to talk to. And um, if the people that people that burn out in New York City, which you know, which happens a great deal, are I mean. I suspect are the ones that are out every goddamn night. I don't know how they do it, but I'm certainly not that person. You're not. Yeah, you're, you're too busy working. You're getting stuff done. Yeah, get uh, it done. So let's talk about uh, the dangers of proximal alphabets. Get, like, give. Can you give a short I history of like how it how it came to be? Like, what was it? What was it that sparked for you? And like, what what are the books? What's the book's origin story? Oh, well, um. I mean, I was talking to an interview and, and I real an interviewer and I realized that I have kind of um, my answer is sort of filmic in that I just I had this image of two brothers um, sleeping in opposite beds and sleep talking and that when they started to talk in their sleep it would form a conversation um, and it was just that it just started there and then there was a little girl in between them who heard the things that they said and then they all became incredibly sad adults, you know, over a stretch of, of time and, and artistry and like a, you know, a lapidary uh, creation process. And do you, I mean, so like, this is just complete, like complete fiction, like, and do you, do you have, like, can you, can you see the biography in it? Is there, I mean, obviously all artists in some way biography, but earlier when I said, you know, you wrote a book about the experiences that you had 
uh, as a teenager, um, you know, with the loss of your dad and your stepfather and stuff like this book, you don't think is in any way addressing that in a direct, or at least not directly. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think directly. Um, obviously, obviously indirectly. Like I think that everything that happens to us kind of like works its way into our bones. And then as writers, um, it comes out, uh, in in ways that we expect or don't expect, but this is this is in no way you know a thinly veiled autobiography. I you know I knew no like brothers growing up that I was close to. Um, I've never seen anyone make any artwork in their sleep. Um, <laughs> all, I mean, I kind of wish I had, yeah, you no, know, but great. Um, that that was all made up. And so, uh, like, has the publication process lived up to its billing? Like, you know, have you found yourself let down in any way by, you know, seeing it roll out into the world? Or, or has it been everything that you expected? Or did you expect well, anything? what I tried to do is not nurture any expectations. Um, because it's such a strange thing. Someone tells you, like, all right, well, you've got a book deal now, and your book will be published, and, and maybe it'll do well, or maybe it won't. But you don't even really know. You can't see the shape of either of those poles. You know what I mean? Like I, um, And so I just tried to say, like, I'm proud of myself, and, like, this will be, this will be, like, a foundation for a fantastic house. But, like, who knows? And then it's, you know, it's been great. Like, um, it's gotten reviews in, in great publications, and, uh, and I'm lucky, and, you know. Yeah, uh, I don't that, feel too disappointed or anything. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, should, you shouldn't. I mean, you know, it's, you've done wonderfully. Um, so what about the future? You know, obviously there's more books, but do you see yourself doing like, you know, the usual writerly teaching thing? Or is that something you would like to avoid? Do you see yourself like going overseas and living some expatriated life? Like, like what is your little dream, you know? Um. Definitely not smoking cigarettes in Paris. That's not what I'm attracted to. It's not going to happen. No. Um, man, I I always go back and forth, you know, because I'm I'm attracted to rural environments. Uh, I is it okay that if I don't know, you know, I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm like sort of excited to see what happens. I like. Um, the few like vague experiences I've had with, with teaching or, or talking about writing, I like, but I'm not sure if that's a path that I'm going to go down, specifically because the path that led me to where I am was not really academic. Um, and so, and so I'm not sure, you know, I hope I can, I hope I can diversify, you know, I think I'd like to, you know, maybe get into like nonfiction a little bit more. I'm not talking about like memoirs, but just like short, like nonfiction pieces or, or journalism. Like my parents are both journalists and I, uh, you know, I've never really, I've never done that too much, but my few experiences with it have been, have been all right. So, you know, maybe like, maybe that, I'm not sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, and, um, I never did ask you like, what kind of journalism were your parents in? Were they writing for like newspapers and stuff? Um, yeah. Um, they, they met at a, at a paper in Oakland and my dad was, um, you know, my mom quit, uh, writing at a paper when I was a little bit younger, but my dad was like a lifelong journalist and he worked for radio for Europe in like the 60s and then he um he worked for uh Cesar Chavez he um wrote for El Macriado which was the the newspaper for the farm workers union and he he did all these things and then he kind of ended up at this uh at this you know dopey newspaper in my in my small town um for a while he's probably uh, he's probably tired he's like I'm 
done with running around doing these crazy yeah, things. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did, I mean, he did do that. I think I was probably, I think I've always been a little bit scared of journalism because I feel like it sends people on insane chases, you know, where they're just always after the next improbable story or the source that's really going to, that's really going to make a narrative arc or like, and I'm like, God damn it. Like I can, I'll just handle that on my own in my little room, please. Yeah. <laughs> so. no, but I, I entertain that fantasy. Like that. tell me if you, if you're similar, but like when it comes to like journalism or doing something with nonfiction, uh, I long to find one of those storylines. Like I, I always like think of like Errol Morris for some reason, the documentary filmmaker and like how he finds these weird people and they've got these incredible lives that are just sort of, you know, sitting there but nobody knows about them just ordinary people with these incredible stories to tell and it would be very fun i think to do something like that but i can't find the people you know <laughs> do you know what i'm saying, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, like, I feel like he must find them i mean he's clipping out newspaper clippings and reading these sort of like little small side stories and he finds these people and tracks them down but i guess i have it in my head if that's ever going to happen for me it's going to be a situation where i kind of walk into it maybe then, well, I think it it also might be you know the, the it's a it's a topic and and from that you find you find the person. Um, like I got to meet uh, the the book that I'm working on now has this genetic disorder that I find really fascinating um, called Williams syndrome, um, which uh, you know it's it's like a chromosomal deficiency and it leads to these people who are disabled, but they have this. For instance, they have this really fantastic verbal command, and they have almost always like a perfect pitch and a proclivity towards music, and, and all these all these incredible things. And I um and I ended up um getting to getting to spend some time with someone who who deals with Williams syndrome, um and that was more rewarding than reading about reading than reading about it. But that's that's how I got there. I wouldn't have ever met her organically. So what got you into this this Williams syndrome thing? Uh, I don't know. I guess there was just there was a piece on you know. NPR or something like two two years ago when I was still actually writing alphabets and I just thought that it was I just thought that it was sweet. Um, people with Williams syndrome have these sky high levels of of oxytocin, which is you know that that chemical that's kind of like released at like birth and death and it's just like trust and love and um, I'm just really like it's it's probably terrible to say I'm like into a genetic disorder that people face and have difficulties with, but I'm just really into it. You're like fetishizing it. You know? <laughs> Yeah, so cool. So, um, it was always kind of sitting around in my head, and then when I um when I got into the book I'm writing, which is like a you know it's it's linked narratives of um God I hate the term linked narrative, but it's linked narratives of all these people in a in an apartment building in in Brooklyn, and one of them I just realized like just had it. I was like, that's who he is. There's Polly, and then I decided that I had to you know other other things I can kind of. I'm I'm pretty good with empathic imagination, but I felt like this this deserved some some really thorough research and some actual like in person time. Yeah, um, well, and, but no, but I've argued this before. Like I think that as novelists or f- fiction writer or whatever or nonfiction writer, like if you have an opportunity uh, to go do something experientially as a part of your creative work for your book, I think you should do it. And I guess not, I guess like, you know, that's not a hard, fast rule. Some people can just be perfectly happy just sitting in their rooms writing, but I think it's good to get out into the world and to mix with people and to have, I think that makes a book stronger or at least makes your life richer, you know? No, I, I mean, I certainly think so. It was speaking of rewards, deeply rewarding that afternoon. So, and it was just like an afternoon that you spent with like a doctor or something? No, 
no, no, no, no. Um, I what I did was that I reached out to the Williams Syndrome Association and this really like lovely, exclamatory woman. Like I wrote and I was self conscious. I was like, hey, I'm a weird novelist fascinated with this syndrome that I understand is hard to live with, but uh, I would really like to meet someone who has it. And so I ended up, you know, I ended up meeting with um, the father of a, a woman um, who has it. And then I met, you know, I met with, and I met with her and we, and we spoke for a while and it was incredible. And that's how, and that's how you do it. Like I, it was almost too easy. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'm very impressed. I think that's amazing what you've been able to do uh, at such a young age. And I'll be excited to see, you know, what happens next for you. And I thank you for taking the time to talk with me. This has been great. Oh, well, thank you so much. I had the, the best time. And now the sun has set over Manhattan. And it's beautiful. So it's like been a really nice hour. Oh, wow. And it's like perfect. Like nature is in sync with what we're doing here. Like the sun. Totally, bro. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, uh, best of luck to you. Thanks so much. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Kathleen Alcott. Great fun talking with her. Go get her book. It is called The Dangers of Proximal Alphabets. You can find her online at KathleenAlcott.com. You can find her on the Facebook, and she's on Twitter as well. Her handle is at Kathleen Alcott. This show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. If you would like to read my insomnia tweets, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me, let me know what you think. The address is letters at OtherPeoplePod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And thanks once again to today's sponsor, the Lit Breaker Ad Network. If you want to get the word out to the literary arts and culture web, please go visit litbreaker.com. And uh, finally, what else? I don't know. I'm hoping that I can sleep through the night tonight. That's sort of the goal. I'm hoping that there are no more uh, strange nightmares. Apparently, I'm scared of body hair. I just am. Uh, I think that might be true when I look back on my life. I think I can admit that. I'm not proud of it, but I could admit it. Please remember that Thomas Hardy was abusive to his servants and that Salvador Dali once gave a lecture in London while wearing a diving helmet. That is it for now. Thank you for being here. Uh, I will be back again soon. You know the drill. I think I'm going to go walk around a little bit. Uh, Perhaps I'll run. I think the goal is going to be to wear myself out, to make myself completely exhausted in hopes that I will collapse into a deep and peaceful sleep later on this evening. Uh, I just want to collapse. That's what I want to do. I want to collapse uh, into a heap, into uh, a heap of sleep a heap of deep sleep, uh, a heap of deep and hopefully uh, not creepy sleep. You know what I mean.